Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan, presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 30. Our guest today is someone whose odyssey through the surfing landscape, their triumphs, their trials, could have been scribed by Homer himself. From their humble beginnings in the New South Wales south coast town of Kilbara, to the gypsy existence of following the Australian Junior Series with their family along the eastern coastline, to becoming one of the hottest prospects of their generation, the subject of Trans-Pacific Bidding Wars, a demonic CT wildcard with claw airbrushes on their boards and zero regard for their opponents, a multiple event winner and perennial title contender who was sidelined with one of the most traumatic injuries the surfing world has ever seen, who now, after years, finally feels like they're in a space where challenging for the world title is once again a reality. Please enjoy part one of two of the lineup's low tide conversation with Australia's Owen Wright. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave, get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's <laughs> like you're boxing. Owen Wright, joining the lineup at Low Tide. Thank you so much for your time today. We're, we're honored to have you on. Thanks for having us. I'm yeah, stoked to have a chat and yeah, I'm on the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you doing today? Where, where are you today and, and who are you with? I'm uh, down the south coast of Australia at the moment um, with my wife, Keita, and my little son, Varley. Um, we're just staying at my mum's house right now, but she's just headed off to Melbourne. So we're just here to our, here to ourselves. And uh, yeah, I've just kept been catching up with some friends and uh, I really like the waves down this way. So I've been kind of hunting around a few few uh, slab rock barrels and yeah, it's been a bit of fun. Did, did you surf today already? Are you going to surf? I haven't surfed today yet, but um, one of my favorite waves is breaking today. So um, I'll be all over it. Excellent. And how has the quarantine been for you and your family with Kida and Val Vali um, in Australia? How how's it been for you guys? Um, that the first when it first all happened, and um, we we're at Man- I was at Manly, and it got can- it got finished, and the tour got canned right there at that event. And then that next week or so was really like up and down, and I think there was emotions high everywhere. Um, I remember going for a ride on a bike and having someone come at me pretty full on and try and take photos and, you know, start you know, being pretty aggressive about like just being out and just being out riding the bike. Um, and yeah, there was definitely moments where we kind of kept to ourselves and, and, uh, but we just ended up doing lots of fun stuff together. We just walked on the beach and went surfing all the time. We, we were pretty lucky our beaches were still open, so we got to to surf, which was amazing. But we also we're pretty lucky we got uh, we live on a pretty big property, so we had heaps of room to move trampolines and little motorbikes and yeah, big concreted area to skateboard in and yeah, we were doing all right. Yeah, I, I mean it. In America, it's been a little bit different. Like I think I've been saying, you know, almost at every episode, we're we're talking about these sort of these CDC symptoms, and we're talking about the World Health Organization recommendations. And I think I've been saying, you know, some some countries have done this better than others. And in America, it's been really challenging, and it's been challenging, sort of, you know, between that and then, you know, the economic meltdown that's kind of resulted from it, and then. Um, you know, in the last few weeks, um, you know, the conversation about race after after George Floyd was murdered on uh, on May 25th. And yeah, it's it's been pretty serious in America. Um, I think it's been kind of like this huge pause and like moment of reflection for a lot of people. And I know that, um, you know, Reconciliation Day in Australia was on June 1st, which has to do with with, um, you know, the Aboriginal communities and, and the history in Australia do you have any experience um, with Aboriginal communities in Australia throughout your upbringing and, and kind of what is your perspective on that? Yeah, like I think you said it um, best there is like it made you pause and have a moment of reflection. 
And I think in those moments of reflection, that's where we need to go and realise our history and and delve into the cultures that have not been taught to us or, you know, kind of hidden away or not not spoken about. And um, But I know for me, my childhood, we had a very rich connection with the Aboriginal culture that we had a, a, a housing commission in our town and all my friends were there. They were at our house, we were at their house. We surfed together, we played footy together. So I was lucky enough to learn a few stories of the land that they grew up on prior to white, white Caucasians arriving in Australia. So, you know, the South Coast region has a, a few amazing stories one of my favourite waves, Aussie Pipe, the whales are known to come in there and rub the barnacles off their off their bellies and backs. And um, you can paddle out to a point in the ocean and you look back at the land and it's in the shape of a whale and you cannot miss it. It's like unmistakable. So there's like little stories like that and then uh, just a bit further south. Well, this region actually has a mountain called the Mother Mountain and uh, Mount Dromedary. And there's like this story of where the oldest son ventured out and there's like a, uh, an island just off the coast and things like that. There's lots of rich history in our region that we got to learn and understand and share stories and whatnot, which I feel like we were pretty, well, my family was pretty lucky to have that connection and, and um, share a bit of that history. So, yeah, well, I think it's the world will be better off to learn some of the histories and most of the histories of where these cultures came from and, and get that respect and give them that respect. And, and um, yeah, I, it's, it's pretty sad what's happened in America. And um, there's some sad things that's happened in Australia too. And hopefully that can all turn around. Yeah, I mean, that's like an amazing insight and story too, because I think it gets at the point of, you know, especially when you're very young, if there's a very natural, organic and authentic connection to other people and different kind of people like that that what you the word you used respect is kind of there from the beginning and surfing's yeah. one of those things you know where it's kind of at both times it can be very sheltered but it can also expose you to different cultures and different people especially when you're traveling at a young age it too you know you kind of have that in you where you're exposed to cultures and the acceptance of and appreciation for and connection to people that are different from you, it can oftentimes be automatic. Yeah. It's uh, traveling around, like you say, in the world too, you can kind of feel like you're in that bubble, you know, through just kind of popping your head out and going, Oh, we're in France and let's talk to the local people. What, what are they, what, what, what do they like to do here? And, and things like that. I think traveling and the world tour can have a, a massive benefit that way too. Like we go to Fiji and the culture over there that we always try to incorporate into the events and the ceremonies, um, opening ceremonies and things like that. I, I love those parts of the events and Tahiti. Yeah. I, and I think maybe that's through, you know, growing up there's just, I've had that exposure and to gain that respect for those cultures and want to understand and want to learn and, and have that appreciation there. So I've, I've been pretty lucky to see a few cultures around the world now, as well as just really have that respect and appreciation for the culture that we have here in Australia. Well, let's talk about where you grew up. So, so, so the Wright family are so unique and so special and you guys are, are so talented across the board. Where did you grow up? you know, who are your siblings? Like, what was the family like when, when you were, when you were first getting started? Um, so yeah, we, we grew up in the South coast in Colborough and it's really close to that Aussie Park wave and which is, I love that wave. Um, is that the wave you're going to surf later today? Is that the one you keep? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, on okay. today. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like we, we grew up, it's a pretty small town. There's only 1300 people or something in that town. And we, there's five siblings. So my older brother, Tim, and then I was the second. And then you had my other sister, Kirby, and then Tyler, Tyler Wright, obviously, she's the two-time world champion. And then we got Mikey Wright, who's uh, just qualified for the CT and whatnot. So there's like three three world tour surfers on there, which is, I guess is pretty pretty rare to be all at the same time. And when we all, I guess when we all first started, it, 
my one of my dad's theories of uh, fathering was like, get them hooked on surfing and fathering will become easy, you know. So, <laughs> and he just loved surfing. He was like, I better get him hooked on surfing because that's what I love doing. And and he's that's we all got kind of hooked on surfing and we all surfed. My older brother and my sister Kirby, she did the QS for a while. And yeah, my older brother still surfs and yeah, we just were all about the ocean. And you guys traveled around quite a bit too. I know you're based in Colbera, but you guys traveled the coastline quite a bit when you were young. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, well, like, it's a funny thing that I have with my wife at the moment. She's like, everywhere I go in the whole east coast of Australia, I'm not lost. I know where I am, anything, like every street, every turn. And she's like, how do you, how do, you do this? And I was like, I, was, I didn't even dawn on me, but since I was probably five, six years old, we had this bus and my dad would basically just travel up and down the coastline to all these little competitions. And, uh, and then we had the junior series competitions, which there was like 15 of those in, um, you know, throughout the year. And I you know, did that from 15 to 20. And we had this, we had a few different buses over the time. The bus kind of grew as we got older. But man, there was sometimes we we're in this one bus and there was like two story beds in, um, two or three kids on each level, one of the parents, sometimes on the bench seat. And yeah, there's some funny stories. Like there was this one time we stopped uh, halfway between Bells and and home. Yeah, we were a fair way into the travel. And, and then um, we were sleeping that night and Mikey was on the top level and he like, he used to like, kick and we used to call him karate like he used to do karate whilst he was sleeping right and he would just like kicked himself out of the bed and knocked the two back doors open and my <laughs> head was kind of like laying like a bit further out I was already getting pretty tall and um a bit further out of the bed and he just like landed straight on my head from the top level down <laughs> kept rolling out of the car there was like heaps of moments like that that we had and shared that were really fun but yeah, that's that was our childhood was just basically this whole coastline and getting to learn about it and where we were and and I guess that's kind of stuck now. We we did most of the coastline and have camped nearly everywhere in car parks and we had this thing called the Surf Life Saving Clubs here in Australia. And you if you were joined in those clubs, you could pretty much rock up at any one of those surf clubs along the coastline and have like a shower, a bed, uh whatever like you're kind of welcomed in a little bit so yeah we we always had places to go little nifty little things to do which which one of the right siblings was the best traveler and which one was the worst oh i think um oh geez everyone i thought i was gonna say tyler but she 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 got car sick (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was like because she would just sleep man she was just a sleeper she'd just be like Oh yeah. oh yeah, whatever. Like she was just go with the flow, um, but then she did get car sickness a few times. I think Mikey was Mikey was pretty pretty good, but you have to let him out and run around. <laughs> we were all pretty young. <laughs> we were pretty That's young. Okay. We're doing this. I I remember a lot of the times we were, you know, always kind of camping and and whatnot. Mikey was pretty good at it. He loved he did love that camping type of stuff, and and we had a bunch of families that we did it with too. So. That was probably one of the fun things. We'd have all these cook-ups and, you know, if there was sand in your food, that was called bush pepper, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of little things like that that was, you know, you kind of had to make a bit of a joke because nothing was that clean and every all your food was kind of pretty pretty dirty. <laughs> a a <laughs> couple of years fun. ago, I uh, I convinced um, Mercedes to uh, to give us one of those, like, it wasn't like a full Sprinter van, it was a little bit smaller, but we, we I drove my kids and my family from Melbourne up to Brisbane, like all the way up for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And we went along the coastline, the same thing, what you describe, it's like, there's so many nice campsites and there's so many good, like, programs for people that just want to get out and enjoy the outdoors um yeah we were just like blown away by it but i do remember we 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 ended with a few nights on north stradbrook island which was really really nice and you guys have something called a curlew bird which is maybe like two feet tall and it makes this if if anyone's listening youtube curlew bird cry it makes this otherworldly like scream 
And I remember we were all like outside the van one night. There was no light. My kids were like, I must have been like, geez, like four, four or five. Yeah, around there. And like this thing emerged out of the bushes and it looks like a little alien in the dark because it's like kind of white with gray markings, but you can't see the gray markings and it's kind of tall and it kind of walks out and it makes this sound and we all looked and we went, what's that thing? And then it just made another sound and everyone screamed and ran back in the van. And we were like, oh my God, what is that? And then we figured out it was the curlew bird, which is probably the least dangerous animal in Australia because you guys have a few of them. <laughs> yeah, but that makes a pretty, uh, pretty like frightening sound. I remember <clears throat> my wife seeing that bird for the first time we were on our honeymoon and, um, and it was at the restaurant and it was making this sound. She's like, what is that noise? And you know the noise and it's like kind of off-putting, like what? It's really is this bird gonna yeah. like, Is this bird going to have a go at me right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they're pretty funny creatures. There's a few, there's a few, yeah, obviously there's lots, lots of spider stories here in Oz. We get so many spiders, um, especially in vans. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, 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 we always had, you know, we were always pretty, pretty safe. We never, we never even had too many shark run-ins to be honest, but that seems to be happening pretty regularly these days <laughs> up yeah. here in, down here in Oz. Just had another one down in Kingscliff, which was close. Yeah, I wonder what that. I mean, you know, there's. It seems like it's global too. Like there just feels like mm. there's more activity, and I wonder what your opinion is on it. Because I know some people are like, look, it's probably a range of things. Like they've been a protected species, so their numbers are up. We're overfishing, so they're coming closer. There's just more humans um, using the water, so the probability of an interaction's higher. Like, do you have any theories on kind of the increase in shark activity? Oh, I, I'm not too sure, but I know uh, I I feel like it's definitely an increase. Uh, some you hear some people say, "Oh no, it's just because they were filming things now," or we're, right, yeah, yeah, you know, everything's more seen and more watched, um, and like you say, more humans. But yeah, that just doesn't make sense. Like the, I've surfed the same spots my whole life and never seen sharks, but they are, there's definitely sharks like in all the locations that I surf now and, and you see them. Whereas before you never saw them. Now I, yeah. I definitely see them. Um, right. Uh, which is, that's a change, but I don't know. Look, there's, I think probably all of those things you mentioned is probably adding to the thing, but uh, yeah, sharks. <laughs> well, so you guys were traveling around the Australian coastline. You're chasing the competitive circuits there. Um, did you guys have, was your dad, since he was so into surfing, was there like a clear goal? Was it like, well, I want you guys to qualify. I want you to contend for world titles or, or was it, I just want you to get really good at surfing or was it a mixture of both? Was, was there kind of clearly communicated goals for you guys as you were competing? I, I think, I, you, you know, everyone was different in this scenario. For me, I had like this driving passion to surf every morning or get up at, whatever time and chase whatever wave and, you know, surf before school, surf after school. Um, and then competitively, um, I loved it. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. And I asked my dad to help me learn some things to try and qualify. And then he kind of was like, okay, you know, like, let's get a bit more discipline. Let's get a bit more of this and, you know, see, see what we can do to try and help you qualify. That was my, my story and then I think you know the other guys you know my older brother he competed but then he went off and did something else so I think it was pretty even as far as like well you just whatever you wanted to do um because it was a before I decided to qualify I was I didn't do that many events I was just I did like a few juniors that year and then just cruised most of the year and then yeah I kind of it was a bit of a once you got to 18, it was kind of your choice. Yeah. And then before that, it was kind of like, well, Owen's going here and Tyler's going here. And if you guys want to come, I'm going to take him there. And, you know, so it was kind of like one, one in all in type deal. You know, if we was going to play footy, then there's four of us playing footy. It, it was kind of hard to have one kid go to swimming or one kid go to <laughs> yeah. surfing, one kid go to football, one kid go to soccer. So it was, it was kind of like, 
moving around to these different sports. A little pack, um, yeah. A bit of a pack. And, and um, that was definitely the younger days. It's like, oh, if we're doing uh, swimming today, we'll, mum had us in the car at six o'clock in the morning doing swim squad, swim squad before school. But there was four of us in the car, so all doing it. So, it, but um, once he got older, it was like, oh, you got your license, you do whatever you want. And was Rip Curl your first major sponsor? Yeah, there's a funny story there. I asked Rip Curl to sponsor me uh, when I was about 10, I think. And I did too. Um, I said no. I, hey. I said, I did too. They didn't say yes. Was- they didn't say yes to me either. <laughs> 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 um, I sent him a video and they're like, oh, yeah, nah, no, no, nah, not good enough. And I was like, gutted. I was so gutted. What and was wrong then, with the video? What was wrong with 10 year old Owen Wright's video? I don't know, man. <laughs> Something was up. <laughs> um, I'm still friends. With, I'm still friends. It was um, Andy Higo, actually. We're still good <laughs> friends now. And, um, and then the next year came around, there was like this rusty grum fest. Um, back in the day in Oz and it was like that was where if you could pick up a sponsor you had to like get in the final there or something and I picked up a sponsor I I, I won the final and then that's when Andy was like yeah right you can be sponsored now <laughs> and that's you, how that happened but, do uh, you remember getting your first wetsuit from them oh uh, yeah yeah that was like gold I think I, I don't know if I was more excited about the wetsuit or the stickers like because you got to think like that age it was stickers are pretty hot whereas then wetsuits when I got to about 14 15 that's when I was like wow like Mick was in those like raptor wetsuits uh that's like the the they just started progressing there was like those elasto max and all those things and (laughs) Mick would always come out with them first and Hedgie and even Davo um and you just always wanted those ones. I think Mick had like an orange one and I was just like, God, I've got to get that one. <laughs> <laughs> I need that one, yeah. Because I, yeah. I worked at Rip Curl at the time and like they didn't want to pay me to surf. Um, so they paid me to sell wetsuits. Um, <laughs> minimum wage. But, but the best thing about it was they gave every retail kid like a wetsuit every year. And it's like, oh, awesome. Yeah. And the, I, I started and they're like, our best suit's the ultimate, which featured elasto and we're like whoa what's that stuff and it was like yeah we're so stoked every year but then like some years it's like you know progress is the straight line like there was the year they came out with like the zigzag est where they're like no more stitching here's your wetsuit we're like whoa this is awesome and it was like the best wetsuit for a week and then it blew apart we're like oh fuck, like <laughs> it's the worst and but man like I, that was just such a huge thing for me even working at the shop and like it's amazing like how far the wetsuits have come from them to now like if, if you uh, they got the new one coming out the e7 have you tried that one yet yeah i just uh was talking to uh jt this morning just kind of going oh i've just got i've just just tried it out and and fletch and whatnot and uh mate that thing is so free i like oh, being tall like i'm six three so nearly every wetsuit i've tried the shoulders are pretty pulled tight like no matter what and uh, this wetsuit is like, it's there. And then you can pull your shoulders like off your body, like this far, they're that like stretchy. Uh, and I'm like, I've never felt a wetsuit like it. Um, I don't know how they keep doing it or finding a fabric that just like betters the last. Um, obviously in the past, I found those, you know, oh, we don't stitch anymore and they blew apart and whatnot. Yeah, but, yeah. Like, <laughs> but, but they haven't had one of those for so long. It's just like, oh, we've got this flash bomb material and you're just like, wow, I have never been warmer. And then like they do the uh, heat seeker and you're like, this is weirdly, weirdly warm. Like you start paddling your heat up and it's just so good for reef breaks and that are your long, long weights and whatnot. Cause it's like heating up in the sun or when you move. Um, which is w- totally tapped. And then this E7 has just been like, uh, it's the best performance suit I've ever, ever worn. I was like, man, like this at J-Bay when your shoulders are burning, you probably won't even get any like shoulder burning. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I can't wait to just keep trying it and keep wearing it and seeing how much more movement I have. I'm, I'm glad that they, they only numbered it like every few years because if it was the actual like accurate, like, 
we update the number every year yeah. from the time I started. It'd probably be like the E like 35 or something. And I'm like, oh, I'm glad it's called the seven because it's nice and vague. But I'm like, <laughs> okay, it's great, you know, but yeah, you're totally right. I, I've tried, I got one and I've tried it the last couple of days and it's, I'm the same. Like I was psyched back in whenever, like 98 yeah. with like the ultimate. Yeah. I'm like, it was the best wetsuit ever. And now I'm like, it's yeah. so much better. It's amazing. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre that they can just keep progressing, which is, even myself, I get skeptical of what they're going to produce, you know, and I'm part of it and it's just, and sponsored by them. And I'm like, come on, E7, like, what, what are we talking? You know, like, <laughs> what did change like a little seam or something? And no, it's legit a way better suit than the last. I don't, <laughs> um, yeah, I can't, I can't describe it, but yeah, that was definitely growing up though. That was, that was the hook, you know, for me to stay with Ripkel. You know, there was times where contracts would come up and whatnot and, and it was like, I just can't leave their wetsuits. Hey, like I'll take less. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that a little bit because we'll, I want to get back to the, the rip curl program, but I did uh Pat O'Connell was trying to call me right when we were starting this. I'm like, I'm busy, I'm gonna podcast with Owen and he's like, Oh, okay, awesome. He's where we're at, have fun. I'm like, I remember that you tried to poach Owen at one point. And I'm like, is that true? And he's like, Yeah, he goes, Ask him about his trip to Nike in like 2007, 2008. So I, I'm here asking. <laughs> yeah, I was absolutely blown away by that trip. That was so awesome. I was, I got flown over business class, um, walked through the Nike headquarters, and I was like, wow, this is amazing, like totally starstruck. And then I just came back to my sleepy little Colbara town <laughs> and put on my wetsuit and was like, I can't leave this wetsuit. I feel horrible. <laughs> Thank you for the trip. Pat, um, absolutely loved it. I enjoyed riding in the pointy end of the plane. Oh my gosh, that was great. Like I was so, I was young at the time too. And yeah, like that was the time, that was a time when surfing, there was, you know, some pretty solid brands coming into the, into the sport. And um, I was one of Australia's, better surfers at the time or juniors up and coming um, along with Jules and Wilco and a, f a few others. And um, yeah, that for sure was an amazing trip, but uh, you know, the wetsuit, the wetsuit drew me, you know, like the, the flashy lights and the business class and it just, I was like, ah, oh, it's just, you know, I, I couldn't leave that. Like I'm going to be in this wetsuit every day and this has got to be, like uh, yeah that was the best wedding so that's how I that's how I stayed with Ripcal and you know I was actually even around that same time I was I was actually doing a bit of work for my dad because I was just left school but I wasn't full I was just about to, to this was around this same contract time where the contract was a bit more serious and you know there was a few more things that Ripcal had me doing going on all their search trips and whatnot and yeah, they had to call up dad and like, Hey, look, he works for us now. Not you. <laughs> we, we don't want to call him up and hear it and say, Oh, I'm just out on the job site. Uh, we'll call you back. Or, you know, I would talk to his, you know, talk to my dad, see, see what I got to do with this week. And they're like, that, that was that phone call. And, uh, we would get on the search and, and start doing a few more events and whatnot. So that was that professional, professional turn was right around that same contract time, but the wetsuit, the wetsuit did win over the kind of Nike Hurley connection. So, well, I, I want to I want to dive into that. I, I do want to dive into that period of time because I think it's really interesting. But first, we're going to take a quick break and get a word in from our sponsors. Hey, I hear you think podcasts are all about true crime, huh? Well, wise guy, the iHeartRadio app's got all kinds of podcasts. We got stuff you should know and stuff they don't want you to know. We got Bobby Bones, Big Boy, and Lou Later. We got SpongeBob Binge Pants and Exotic Erotic Storytime. We got Doughboys, Two Dudes in a Kitchen, Green Eggs and Dan. Hey, we got ElfQuest. We got podcasts for everything on the iHeartRadio app for free. If you don't download that, well, that's not just a true crime, my friend. That's criminal. Cool. So let so Owen, let's talk a little bit about that because you mentioned that your profile was raising in Australia. You're up there with Matt Wilkinson, Julian Wilson, and it was a real e even internationally because I was on tour at the time. But over in America and in Europe, there's a lot of attention around you guys. So 
you know, you, you said that there was this conversation where Rip Curl called your dad and he's like, he can't moonlight for you anymore. Like he's a professional surfer. He's going to be one of the best surfers in the world. What are the steps between that conversation and then qualifying? I, I know there were wild cards in there. I know there was a QS run. Like, like t- take us through that period of your life. Yeah, so that period of my life was really interesting. Um, I'd left school. Well, I had the option to leave school. And the option to leave school was, well, you go to school for six to eight hours or whatever. And if you leave school, I expect you to be working for six to eight hours a day or doing something of that sort. So at that time, I didn't really, I knew I didn't want to be at school, but I, I definitely you know, didn't have a job to do for six to eight hours. So I started to do like kind of surfing and plumbing, which was what my dad did. And, um, and then that's when right around the same time as like you're saying, there was Julian and Matt and even like overseas, there was Geordie and, um, Jeremy, I think he was already on tour at this time. Like he was, he got on tour way young. Dane, um, which is, but they, you're Dane, right. There was a whole collective yeah. of guys. Yeah. Yeah. There was a bit of a collective and, um, that led to like that basically my time was being spent there with dad and that, then those contracts started to come in where they were a lot more serious and dad was like, all right, well, you know, we got the phone for, call from Rip Curl, like you're no longer working for your dad. You've got to work for us. And so the trip started to come a lot more what we were doing a lot of search trips um, and Wilco and I were doing yeah, all kinds of different surf trips together at that stage. Um, as soon as that stage clicked over into those more serious contracts. And how old are you at this point? I think it was like 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was 17. Yeah. Right there. It would have been 17. And that was probably around that Quicksilver had their young guns videos too. Um, mm. You know, where they, it was like the brands really started to focus in on the, that generation um, that was going to come up. Yeah. And we all of a sudden was going to, I started to go to Chile and started to go, go to just all these different boat trips and different islands and just all these incredible trips that Rip Curl just had all this great search, search crew going. And um, we got put onto that. So I got to experience like a few of their, I think that was the same time as the uh, search event started on the world mm-hmm. tour. So it would have been 07, 06, 07 yep. is when it first started up. And I just loved that. I got to see the world tour guys and the lifestyle they lived. And they just that's right when I said to my dad, like, hey, can you help me get to there? Like, I, you know, I didn't really know how to get to there. I was competing and surfing well and, and, you know, in one of the top guys for Australia, but, um, you know, then I was going to go to the QS, which is, you know, I just had no idea. So yeah, that's when I asked my dad and said, Hey, can you, can you help me get to that next, next stage? And yeah, he was like, all right, well, I might even come to a few events with ya. And I think he started to come to events when I was a few events when I was 19 or 20 in that age, but um, he definitely set up some good, good little processes for me to, to take those steps. And, you know, uh, I started training with, uh, with Mick um, and I started trying to be healthy and, and just trying to be, just trying to get to that, that dream goal of that dream tour back then. So um, that was that time period. It's interesting that you mentioned getting to travel around and go on the search trips and, what do you think that that did for your surfing, just, just from a pure surfing standpoint? Because I know a lot of kids over the years, sometimes they get in that mold of I'm doing the amateur circuit and then I'm doing the pro junior circuit and then I'm doing the QS and then I'm going to qualify for the CT. And often for a lot of reasons, you know, financial or sponsorship or whatever, they don't have that opportunity to get out and, and really have a free surfing space to develop. Do you, do you, how how much importance do you put on that in terms of how good you got so quickly? Yeah, that's a really interesting point and topic because you see some kids f- focus on that too much. Yeah. And then their competitive side just lacks um, and just doesn't, it's not, not fine-tuned enough. And then you'll see some guys that they're just so intense from 
being so overly competitively driven and some of their like free surfing or some of their, you know, X factor type, what we call X factor in surfing, like oh, someone's going to pull something out of the bag type deal um, lacks a bit as well. So I found then just naturally, no, there was no focus on I need to do this free surf trip to get this type of surfing or there was no I need to focus on competitions because I I, I want to keep my head sharp. And I think these days we have like so many analyses, analyses of how to get to there, how to get to that world tour that before you've even like just gone and pressed book ticket and travel to Papua New Guinea and like you're surfing with some of the oldest cultures in the world and they're on, you know, pieces of wood and you're on the surfboard. Before you even get those experiences, you're, you're only going there to try and develop an X factor, like free, right. you know, it's like over, over complicated. It's too intentional already. sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Too intentional. Whereas I think for me back then, it was just a natural thing that Rip Curl had going and we just wanted to go to all these like search trips and wanted to turn up to these these events. It was just there was just so much excitement about it all. Um, whereas I think so, I feel like there's these days sometimes because of all those natural things that created some great surfers, there's like an analysis of it and too much intention. Like oh no, you've got to go to Chopu and surf Chopu, and you've got to go to you've got to actually surf these different different waves not just to you know to basically get better not to not to just experience the culture and have fun and sit back and and yeah surf whatever you want and you know be sunburnt and crispy and sleep on a bamboo bed and whatnot and yeah but that's what the experiences we got with Ripkel. yeah and i i think you you kind of hit the nail on the head there too because you guys have been the success cases here right where it's like you guys have developed into these, like you have the X factors, you've got the free surfing game, you've got the competitive game, you can make video parts, you can win CTs, you can contend for world titles. And as you noted in the, the Nike conversation, you did so at a time when there was a lot of money and interest happening in the industry. So it set your generation up in a unique way. Whereas when you were coming up, you were probably looking at the generation before and just thinking like, wow, these guys are going to pay for me to go on a boat trip to Indo. Like, how great's that? You know, and it wasn't, I need to go there to bag clips or I need to go there to, you know, whatever, you know, like, and, and as you said, there wasn't as yeah. much intention there. It was a lot more organic for you guys. Yeah, like there was no intention of like, I need to do a boat trip right now or I need to go find a good surf trip because my Instagram page is lacking some uh, <laughs> fresh content uh, and I need to have fresh content to get this sponsorship or to keep this sponsorship happy or what then there was just this like that that money influx where it was like hey we're going to take this whole generation around the world have all these different experiences and it was just yes 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 like and we ate it all up we loved it um and that was definitely that time period was uh, like uh it's uncountable and uh, so many trips and so many fun fun things like I remember we went to Peru to Chikama, the longest left in the world. Well, maybe um, uh, that, that the donkey, that barreling wave. I haven't been there yet, but I want to go there. Um, that wave might challenge that now. But um, yeah, Chikama went there and we just like, me and Wilco were like probably 16, 17 and no parents, no nothing. Like a photographer like John Frank, uh, and <laughs> who's not a parent or anything like that. not a parent in sight, man, not a parent in sight, not a, we we're halfway around the world. We had like John Frank and maybe a Teddy Grambo and we're like doing border crossings and we're getting held up at borders. We're like, we are having some serious situations. We got, we got held in this compound and there was pretty some, like we had to pay double the price to even get out of there. Some pretty sketchy situations, but like that was, we just had all these experiences of like great travel, pretty sketchy travel, but um, nonetheless, like you get to now and you're like, well, that you know, it's a different world in the surfing game as far as like having the money to just take 
tons of grums to do these have these experiences. It it is totally different. I mean, the, the comparably like. I remember after we got acquired and, and there was just so many more people at the as ASP, but you know, the WSL and the, the level of expectation was so high. And I remember talking to someone who, who was a new employee and they were like, all right, well, I'm going to the, I'm going to France for the event. And like, who's my, who, you know, who picks me up from the airport and how do I get to the hotel and how do I get to the event? And like, what do I eat? And like, all, and like, they just needed kind of that handholding because it was just, that was the age. And I'm like, man, I remember the first time, I went to Europe for work and they're like, well, you book it on your credit card and maybe you'll get paid back. And then you just turn up on a date and you just find your own way. You know, there's no GPS, there's no smartphone. And it's just a, it's a totally different experience these days. Oh yeah. I can, there's some of the, the comps that I went to back then. I remember going to, I think France and there was a super series and I was 16 or 17 and I didn't have any way of getting to, uh, down to Hossigor and, um, I was at the airport and I was kind of like, oh, geez. And I'd see someone else's surfboards and I at hitch a lift with like Phil Macker and, and get down there. And then there's, like, there, there was just those great times where um, we, there was nothing was organized at all, but everything was like, yes, go, yes, go, sort it out later. Oh, you'll figure that out later. Um, you know, like whether it was taxis or this or that. Um, but now it's like if you go on somewhere so planned and structured and and I mean I'm even used to that now too. Sometimes I'm like, oh, <laughs> where's the airport shuttle or what's <laughs> that's right, yeah. You call this quiche. <laughs> yeah, what come on. That's been sitting there for three days. Well, I'm not gonna eat that. <laughs> back then it was like I'm eating it. Gas station food. You, yeah. you mentioned some of the uh, the advantages of being on the Rip Curl program, whether it's wetsuits or getting to tap into their team program and getting to learn from people like Mick. But another big one for you at that time were, were and I know how valuable it was, not just for you, but for other people in your generation with different sponsors, but were those wild cards into the CT. And mm. in 2009, which was the year you went on a, a major rampage on the qualifying series and qualified, you had at least two, if I remember right, um, wild cards, one at Bells Beach and one at Portugal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, that was one of the best things about being with the brands that was were supporting the World Tour events, um, especially Ripco. Well, they had a lot of events. Um, I'd, I'd had a wild card at Pipe prior to that. I'd had a wild, a wild card in the search event at Ulu's. I'd had, oh, I'd been to the Chile event. I'd been, yeah, there'd been lots of different wild cards and, you know, extras just through those brands being able to like groom you in that way of like, oh, here you go. Here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity. And uh, it was 2009 where I got given those opportunities and, and uh, turned them into something that, you know, the brands were super stoked on. And, um, and I was incredibly thankful for, I ended up having, ended up having, making I think I got a ninth at at Bells and but to get ninth I had to surf against Kelly maybe once or twice or um mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure the structure of the heats back then but I think I probably would have surfed four times or maybe more uh just to get to that that stage in the event um and that for for me was like such a big highlight to have Kelly and and beat him in Australia at Bells which is for sure Australia's like richest history as as far as like competitive surf events go um and and maybe even maybe even the world that that's a pretty up there event as far as how long it's been running um yeah not even just how long it's been running but like all the even what we were talking about before like you know the connection to aboriginal culture that's there and the songline mm-hmm. stories and stuff like that that is like as far as the gathering of the tribe goes something that resonates globally but what you talked about before in beating Kelly is you beat him again in Portugal. And this was, this was, it's, it's important to put it in a context, right? Because this is 2009. This is pre Kelly's 10th world title, but he is at like peak power, you know, and, and Mm. and working on tour and seeing how like your Taj and Joel and Mick and the Hobgoods and Bobby and all these other kind of contenders had to deal with him. And even some of the young guys that were coming in, you knew Danes and Geordies and stuff. 
it was so impressive. And I remember it was a huge talking point that season because everyone, most people, if not everyone, would wither having to surf against Kelly. Like even sort of the contenders, like he had that psychological edge over people to where they'd be beaten before they'd even paddle out. And that was a huge takeaway for, I remember everyone in the surfing world that year is that here's this young kid that got these wild cards. And as you said, you had, you beat him twice at Bells and you beat him again at Portugal. And I think I actually talked to your dad in Europe that year. I think he was in Europe and I was talking to him about it and he was just like, well, you know, Owen's not phased in about by, by Kelly. Is that something that you guys intentionally, I mean, we talked about before, but like, is that something you guys focused on, like having to face someone like him at, at that young of an age? Um, I think the reason that I was unfazed is because it never was focused on. It was never thought about. Mm. It was never, oh, you've got, come up against Kelly, you've got to be unfazed. You've got to be this competitive beast or this or that. It was um, at that stage of my life, there was just so many experiences coming in that I was eating up that it was just another another experience and uh, – another chance and I, I just didn't I just didn't I think being I'd been around the world tour and whatnot but I wasn't on the world tour as such and caught up in the you know like I for sure Mick and Joel and those guys would have had this like competitive mind battle and you see the Andy and Kelly battle and whatnot that they had there was like so much connection with them both coming back at each other and you know maybe yeah. Kelly got the better of them that way but I wasn't there as such. So as much as Kelly might've been trying to come at me this way, there was nowhere, nowhere in front of him to get at. I just was just this, you know, stoked Grom that was like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> and it was That's uh, actually, it, it's interesting the way you put that, right? Because it's, it sounds like be, between the trips you got to take and then the wild card opportunities you'd had in the past, you'd been there enough to have a familiarity that made you comfortable being there yeah but as you put it not so much that it was a day-to-day thing or an event to an event thing where kelly was just attacking you psychologically you know and it's actually a really good takeaway i think i mean we're talking about kelly specifically but almost to any young developing surfer where it's like you have to find that happy medium and that balance where it's like you can't come in completely cold if you can avoid it and you also don't want to come in thinking about it so much that you you freeze up and you open yourself to that kind of assault yeah, that's it's funny you do say that, and and, and mem- remembering back now, there was definitely times where I said to Dad like, "Oh, like I wanna, I wanna do this event and I wanna do that event," and he was like, "Nah, don't do it. Go on, go and do something else." So there probably is that like natural balance that I found through, you know, getting enough events and having enough experiences on the search trips and whatnot. Um, and and maybe that's kind of where that what came through is like I had enough comfortability with heats and and um, and how to surf heats and and you know not not enough so that I was so connected to the sport or to the to the competitive mind games of what was going on at the tour that that time like it's it's no secret you know like they, they all talk about about the mind games that Kelly was playing and he'll say what mind games was I playing but. <laughs> I don't know about him because I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> he, he also claims that everyone surfs the surf ranch way more than him. I think the mind games are just constant where it's like, hey, your name's off. Uh, <laughs> that, that level of like um, mental approach, is that something that you had, you had such success early on, you know, um, in your career once you were a CT surfer? Is that something that carried through? Um, did it feel any different that rookie year in 2010? You finished seventh, you won rookie of the year. Did it feel any different in 2011? You had that historic like back-to-back-to-back finals against Kelly. Um, you know, you beat him in New York, um, you finished third. Did, did anything disrupt or were you just feeling like you were going from strength to strength in those early years on tour? Yeah, I think I was, I think there's two things to that. I felt like I was going from strength to strength just throughout life, like eating up different experiences and, and whatnot. And then, uh, you know, getting close, getting, getting every experience that I was just eating it all up. And then I think after that, you know, I got close there to, to winning a world title on that second, second, well, I was close there in the race, maybe not points wise by the end of it. I think Kelly smashed it out of the park. Um, but, um, 
I was I was in that in that race, and then I feel like I then put too much focus, like I put too much intention. I put like I tr- overtrained or over you know overexerted. You know, yeah, lost. I felt like maybe lost a bit of that balance or that natural balance that I had through search trips and you know having fun and and definitely throughout the years I I uh, got got that back through different stages and whatnot. Um, but definitely like once you get to that, there's so many opinions coming in at you or, or people that, or, you know, you're there and then it's like, it's just invites opinions and invites people or sometimes it's help, but maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was, who knows. But, um, yeah, I felt, I felt like I, I, I had like a really steady rise and then I had a few injuries that definitely set me back and whether that was overtraining or, or the way I was training, they're, they're all things that I look back at and go, oh, bugger, I wish I didn't have that injury. I was right on a, right on a roll there and um, uh, things like that. But, I mean, that, they're, they're also the experiences that shape me who I am today. So, I, you know, I can't I, – I'm, I'm proud of all the – things that I've learned through those injuries and those some of those things are gold in your life too you might it might be a a, a loss in a one sense but I gained I gained every time through those injuries as well in other senses so that's it that's part one of two of the lineup presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold's conversation with Owen Wright I hope you enjoyed it a huge thank you to Owen for his time and we'll be dropping the second half of the conversation next week If you haven't already checked out Rip Curl's new E7 wetsuit, do yourself a favor and try one on. You won't be disappointed. 2020 continues to challenge us, from global pandemics to economic turmoil to long overdue conversations about systemic racism and the cultural divide that needs to be mended. I encourage you all, as I have to encourage myself daily, to continue to stay informed, educate yourself, and act on that education. Scrutinize where you're getting your information and balance your intake of it from a diverse set of credible sources. On the topic of COVID-19, the CDC's identified symptoms for COVID-19 include runny nose, sore throat, fever, cough, and shortness of breath. If you're not feeling well, call your doctor. And the World Health Organization's behavioral recommendations that everyone should follow. Wash your hands, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth, If you have to cough or sneeze, do so into your elbow. Social distancing, avoid groups of 10 or more people and stay away from everyone as much as you can. If you're not feeling well, get checked out as soon as possible. And if you can work from home, do it. And a massive thank you to the essential workers out there from hospital staff to grocery workers, delivery drivers, firemen, and everyone out there working through the pandemic to keep people safe. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are and we'll see you next week.